Welcome to the Frontline Response to Health and Homelessness podcast series. This series is based on the articles published in the March 2020 edition of Parody Magazine, which is available on the link accompanying the podcast. That magazine and this podcast series give voice to those with lived experience of homelessness, those working on the front line, and those that support the sector in delivering services to people who are homeless. My name is Dan Fleming, and I'm delighted to introduce our host, John Willis, who leads the inclusive health team for St. Vincent's Health Australia. John will introduce our guest in just a moment. As we're recording during the COVID-19 pandemic, both John and our guest will be with us by phone for this episode. John Willis, over to you. Thanks, Dan. It's my wonderful pleasure to welcome Christine Corot, who is the clinical nurse consultant at the Young People's Health Service here in Melbourne, where I'm based also. Um, Lovely to have you on the podcast. How are you going, Christine? I'm doing well. Thanks for speaking to me today, John. Uh, Pleasure. Now, we're great to have you on this series. We've also um, had one of your colleagues, Belinda Tomic, um, from your service on the uh, on the series talking about all things immunisation. But the focus of our conversation today is on your article and how the overall service um, works down there at the Young People's Health Service and how you address the needs of young people who are homeless in all its forms. So just to start off with, um, I might be useful for our listeners to understand a little bit about young people. So we, we know that young people as a, as a group within our society are risk takers. So to begin our conversation, perhaps you could give us some context about has there been any significant change in the behaviours of young people who are homeless um, and their health needs, uh, say from 20 years ago? Um, it's a good question. So I think overall young people continue to be risk-taking. That's just sort of an age-appropriate um, Uh, development stage that they go through. I guess one of the things that may have changed over the last 20 years is uh, drug availability and what is actually being used. So I guess if you think back to the early 2000s, for example, when heroin was much more common and then we've moved more into a stage of ice. Um, So I guess you get different behaviors that come from that. Some of the other things are probably more risk-taking as a result of just difficulty in living. So if you think how little social benefits have increased over time compared with cost of living, there are certain behaviours that you might have to adopt to um, to survive. Mm. And those might be considered risk-taking by those of us that are not living that life. Sure. Uh, and, and so in some ways, potentially there's more complications now. Things are more complicated, potentially about the presentations that you're seeing than from 20 years ago. Potentially, um, potentially, yes. I only say that because I wasn't working in this job 20 years ago, <laughs> sure. uh, so I can't say for sure. But I think, <laughs> yeah, there are are different um, different complications that come with all sorts of presentations. Yeah, great. Thanks, Christine. So the Young People's Health Service has been operating for a while now. I, I, I suppose I was I was curious. I was trying to work out how long it might have been. The Young People's Health Service. How long has it been operating? I think it's been about 20, 25 years now. Yeah, okay. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. So it is, it's been a, a, quite a lengthy service here in Melbourne because I have heard about it in previous lives. So, Christine, perhaps you could give, it our, give our listeners an outline of what the, service, the services you provide and also talk a little bit about how you've, and you covered this in your article, about why you're co-located with Front Yard Youth Services. Mm. Well, the purpose of our service is um, to provide healthcare to young people who might not access it otherwise. So overall, young people sort of tend not to access 
routine health care and it's often an emergency response that they seek rather than just preventative health care. So it's trying to uh, reach young people where they are at a time when they might not prioritize health and be opportunistic with what we can offer them. So that might be sexual health screens and treatment or um, addressing their drug use. That doesn't mean necessarily making them stop, but looking at harm minimization or screens, um, contraception. Really, we'll address anything that the young person comes in with. Um, and the, the purpose of co-location is really to allow us to be where young people are accessing a service. So I think that's always been uh, difficult to try and get a whole bunch of young people in one place. Um, but because we're in a pl uh, service where they're coming in, they're seeking another purpose, so they're coming often for housing reasons, um, we can actually offer them that opportunity to see health while they're waiting. So there, it's a really nice relationship that's between us and Front Yard Youth Services, which is Melbourne City Mission. Um, and through their intake process, they actually can just say, has it been you know, a little while since you've seen a health professional? Would you like to have a chat with them while you're here? Like there's no pressure at all. It's just a right. really comfortable, casual, trying to ease them into the health service in a way that's positive rather than negative. Yeah, that's, that sounds wonderful. It's, um, yeah, it can be quite stressful, I think, um, going to see a health practitioner sometimes. And I think for all of us, sometimes you're not also yeah. keen to jump down to the doctors and get things checked out. So yeah, that's good. Especially if you perhaps don't present in the same way or you feel you might get judged by what you're coming to yep. see the doctor about, you know, all of those sure. factors as well. Mm. Yeah, good. Well, look, one of the things obviously you're doing is making some kind of assessment of the young people that you're seeing. And there's been a bit of discussion in the homeless sector um, that I've been a part of about assessment tools and which one's the most appropriate and effective. So I was interested in your article, you talk about the HEADS tool that you use. And I, I, was, I'm, I suppose I'm diving into a very bit of a specific detail here, but why did you choose that tool over other, other, other potential options? What's useful about the HEADS tool? So the head store was developed in the US probably in the maybe mid to late 80s. I'm not sure of the exact date, but it's been um, deemed to be sort of the best practice tool for engaging with adolescents um, and therefore young people as well because it's actually delving into things that they might not know relate to health. So you're starting um, with questions that are least intrusive and moving down to things that might be considered to be a little bit more personal. Um, and by working through it, you are building rapport, you're having conversation, but everything has intention. So you're starting with questions about housing and education and what their diet is like through their eating habits and exercise, going all the way down to sort of suicidality and their mental health. So really asking quite personal questions. And it allows us to have these opportunistic conversations um, where we can educate and provide harm minimization um, points or offer tests or screens that they perhaps didn't know they needed. Um, yeah. And then they can sort of have some ownership of that. So they can say, well, actually, I think I feel up to this today or no, I don't want to do that today. But they know what's available. So it's giving them choice with some new knowledge as well. Mm. And when you, yeah, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And when you start off with that, uh, those sort of more general questions about housing and stuff, do you, do you ask questions like, um, what's your favourite band or music to sort of loosen them up a bit? Is there a way of sort of being more relaxing in the, when you jump into these conversations? Yeah, 
Yes, like that's always a great way to start a conversation. What are you listening to while you're waiting? Or what, yeah. what book is that that you're reading? You know, just sort of, and we, we do have to go downstairs in an elevator. So that's where those conversations start. Um, and then when they see us in the clinic, we'll ask them if there is a particular reason they're here or if it's just for a general checkup. And yeah. then just introduce it as a way of saying, we'll ask you these questions that probably seem a bit broad and unrelated to health, but it gives us a bigger picture of who you are and where we can intervene and improve your health. And do they ever ask you questions about confidentiality and sharing of data? Do you get questioned about oh, that? And that is so important in working with adolescents and young people. So that's the start of our consult. So even before we start with a HEADS assessment, we'll introduce that and say that these conversations are confidential and we wouldn't share that information apart yeah. from the, um, the reasons we would share it in terms of risk and risk to person. Yeah, rest of themselves or others, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so your article also covers um, some common interventions that you're undertaking for your service down there and um, with the young people coming in. Could you maybe outline what some of the key issues that the young people are coming into your service for and maybe tell us a little bit about um, how effective mm -hmm. those are? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll start um, just very briefly on the immunization because I know Belinda has talked a bit about that, but that uh, is something that we've offered for a very long time. But over the last number of years, the Victorian government has uh, increased the scope of what we're able to provide for vulnerable citizens so that we're able to do catch-ups for free, um, which is sort of what enabled her project. Um, and so we offer vaccines to young people who have um, moved frequently or haven't attended schools regularly. We do a lot of catch-ups. Um, with those, as well as the annual flu vaccine. Um, one of the big ones that comes up is sexual health. So um, oh. young people are often put into situations that aren't necessarily um, of their choice, or um, there may be transactional sex that occurs so that um, there's somewhere to stay for the night. And, and they're often quite disempowered, so they don't, um, they don't necessarily have a say in condom use, for example. Yep. And they don't have the knowledge about um, sexually transmissible infections. So we can have conversations with them about that. We do a screening test, which is really simple. It's just pee in a cup. Um, and then we're actually able to treat. And we do have really good uh, success rates with treating young people, which has been a really positive thing. Oh, yeah, and we also do bloodborne virus screens, so that includes some of the sexually transmissible infections as well, um, depending on, on risk um, what, what the young person's risks are when they present. Um, and then in terms of contraception, so if you think about, um, you know, how little new start or youth allowance is, and if you're having to buy food and pay for accommodation, there's not much left to say pay for an implant on. Um, and so we are able to provide implant ons, um, for young women. So that gives them, that gives them so much more choice. They're not having to make a decision if they happen to become pregnant. Um, yeah. They they have control over their body, um, which is a really important thing. Um, mm. We do also have other forms of contraception we use, but that's certainly one that we like because it's long-acting. It lasts for three years, um, and they don't have to worry about taking a pill every day, for example. And we're I guess we're in a really unique position that, despite the fact that we are registered nurses, we are also advanced practice nurses, so we do have that capability to do that without doctors being on site all the time. Um, which so you're clini clinical nurse practitioners? No. So we have one nurse practitioner and we have yeah. clinical nurse consultants. 
Yep. So you can prescribe. The nurse practitioner can prescribe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Oh, good. And what about things like hep C and those sort of things? Are you screening for that as well? Yes, absolutely. So in the bloodborne virus screen, um, that forms part of that. Um, we have set ourselves up so that we, when the treatments came in a few years ago, we set ourselves up to be able to provide treatment and prescribe that. Um, we offer screening. We're all about sort of early detection for that, for hepatitis B, HIV. Um, however, we actually haven't had that many positive cases, which in itself is wonderful, yeah, but good. we haven't been able to provide any treatment yet. We're just waiting for that pers- first person to accept it. Ah, okay. Yes, of course. <laughs> and I, I think having spoken to the um, one of the, the CNCs in, in hepatitis C, it is an older demographic. Perhaps who have had hepatitis C for a little bit longer rather than new infections in the young population. They're the slightly older group that's being treated or accepting. Oh, treatment. okay. Yes, we so definitely see them through the hospital. Diagnosis, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, interesting. So we're obviously um, conducting this interview during COVID-19 and as you told me off, off air just before, you're actually in the office um, delivering services in a staggered way through your service. But yes. the question I had for you and I've been asking most people on this, this podcast series is because of COVID-19, um, do you think this will change how you deliver frontline health services, in your case particularly to, to homeless young people? Is there going to be a long-term change because of COVID, do you think? Mm. I guess from a, sort of a public health perspective, it has changed things in thinking of immunization delivery being um, a really good example of that, one of the positives is that young people are being housed for, say, up to a week or two weeks, I'm not sure of the specifics, in low-cost motels. But what that means is they're not coming daily to the front yard youth service uh, site, mm-hmm. and so we're not able to see them. So we're not able to provide the flu vaccine to as many people as we would like. So that's, you know, that has... Um, impacts further on down down the track in the next couple of months. Um, it also means when they're discouraging people from coming into the city, like just overall, not front yard specific, um, yep. that means that they're not necessarily coming in spontaneously to get some assistance with contraception or the morning after pill. Um, so there are different risks that are coming up that way that are mm. affecting how we're able to deliver our care. So you're considering an outreach component or how you might... Well, we do have an outreach component where we go to refuges. Um, so uh-huh. we, we go to about five of the youth refuges that are in the area. Um, but at the moment, the way things are, they're not actually allowing external services to come in, and with good reason. Um, yep. So we have run some flu clinics where we're giving the flu vaccine, but we're basically doing those outside. So we stand on the porch um, so that we're in the open air. Which is fine. Mm. We can do that. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it, it's a restriction. Mm. For sure. And it, it, and it sounds like you've lost uh, a lot of that opportunistic um, yes. healthcare delivery because you're not seeing the young, the young people aren't coming in. They're not dropping service. in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah so that's changed. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens down the track. Mm, so, absolutely. They still need it. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so have you done any evaluations of your service and around um, the effectiveness of your model of care? Look, it's a really tricky thing to do, partly um, because of the way that our 
that we originally kept notes, so that was paper form. And so the recording of, of any data and statistics is really quite tricky. Um, sure. Also, it's longitudinal, and people don't tend to come back to let us know how they're going. Um, yeah. Mm. So anecdotally, we can see that there is improvement in people's situations, um, but it's pretty hard to, to demonstrate that with, with good statistical sort of data. Yeah, I can see that because it's a short-term interaction. Finally, when we're coming to the end of our conversation, Christine, I'm, I'm again asking most people on the podcast series this question. Is there a, a story or an encounter that, that inspires you to continue making a difference? We meant, You mentioned offline you've come from Canada and you've worked over there as well, I think. What, what mm. continues you to keep making a difference in this area? I think... Um yeah, I spent some time thinking about this question, and there certainly are a number of young people um, who I've encountered who have really sort of shaped my practice, I guess you would say. And, and I think one of the things I really liked about transitioning from working with homeless adults to homeless young people is there's a little bit, it feels like there's a little bit more hope, that there's hope for change and hope for um, improvement. Um, but the story that I, I could think of was early on when I started working at YPHS and there was a young person first time um, in our clinic and had had a previous HIV brain, um, did fit into a high-risk criteria, but had sort of either not been told, and I presume they were told, but just forgot about the window period testing, so that's having a second test after a number of months. Mm, Um, And they, we told them about it, they agreed to do the, the test, and it came back with a diagnosis of HIV, which obviously was really devastating for them. Um, sure. But they returned, um, supported by a friend. Um, they had multiple conversations with us in the clinic, and then we were able to link them into specialty services. And while I sort of felt okay about the encounter, it wasn't until a number of months later that that same young person just happened to be stopping by um, and came up and you know, greeted me really positively and they had linked in with the service and their health was was really good. And I think it was, you know, that was such a devastating diagnosis to give, but it hadn't, I think what was positive is it hadn't turned them off engaging with healthcare. Mm. So it hadn't sort of made them hide away and, you know, do whatever with that diagnosis, but they followed through and there had been a really positive outcome for them. Fabulous. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. And it, it is not easy to deliver those messages. Um, I haven't had to do that in my working career and I, I take my hat off to you. I'm sure that's not an easy message to give with positive diagnosis in that, those areas. But that's a lovely story of, of hope. Beautiful. Yeah. 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 Christine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a pleasure. No problem. Thank you so much. To subscribe to a printed copy of Parity Magazine, visit chp.org.au forward slash Parity. This podcast series has been developed by St Vincent's Health Australia. For more information about St Vincent's, visit www.svha.org.au. The music track for this podcast is called Slow Burn by Kevin MacLeod host of incompetech.filmmusic.io and is licensed under the Creative Commons 4.0 by Attributions License. 
This information, information about our guests and more can be found in the text under the podcast description. Thanks for listening.